I'm Carrie Fountain, and this is Just to Say, where we talk to poets about the poems they make and the poems they love. Poetry's about anarchy, it's about mystery, it's about dreams, it's about, you know, the unknown. I made myself anew in poetry. The poem invites the world to come celebrate. My name is Ellen Bass, and I'm going to be reading my poem, I Could Touch It. When my wife was breaking apart, my son was falling in love. She lay on the couch with a heated sack of rice on her belly, sometimes dozing, sometimes staring out the window at the olive tree as it broke into tiny white blossoms, as it swelled into bitter black fruit. At first, I wanted to spare him. I wished she was still farming up north, tucking bulbs of green onions into their beds and watering the lettuce his hands gritty, his head haloed in a straw hat. But as the months deepened, I grew selfish. I wanted him here with his new love. When I passed the open bathroom door, I wanted to see them brushing their teeth, one perched on the toilet lid, one on the side of the tub, laughing and talking through their foamy mouths, toothbrushes rattling against their teeth. Like sage gives its scent when you crush it. Like stone is hard. They were happy, and I could touch it. It's such a stunning poem, and it feels to me like a poem that I could hear unattributed and go, yeah, that's an Ellen Bass poem. Like, there's just (laughs) such a sense in your poems of, like, a deep, imagistic immersion on the part of the reader that's so, like, tender and present. One of the things that really strikes me about this poem is the line, at first, I wanted to spare him. Because it comes at a point in the poem where, as the reader, you can't quite be 100% sure that the speaker means spare him the wife's illness, or if it means spare him falling in love. It seems to me like a little moment in the poem where it acknowledges like that all experiences, illness and love, like everything can contain so much. And as a parent, you would want to spare your child <laughs> any difficult emotions. And those come from either of those experiences. I think one of the hardest things is when your experience intersects with other people's experience. And how do you write about them and stay kind of respectful of them? That feels to me like the hardest part. What do I have liberty to say? What don't I have liberty to say? How can I stay focused on my experience? And it's an aesthetic challenge that I've been dealing with for many years in my life in different ways with different people. And I think it has in heart, but it's also made my writing stronger because I've had to find ways to not just rely on all the specific details overly. That's something that's my natural inclination when I sit down to write, is to stick very close to a kind of narrative of this is what happened. And when there's other people involved, I can't just, you know, write an endless poem about that with all those details. So I can use the details. I mean, I use the heated sack of rice, and I use the olive tree, and I use the toothbrush, and I use these things. But 
I'm not saying, well, it began this way and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened in the way that I might gravitate toward if it were solely my own experience. Can you speak a little bit more about, you know, you said when you sit down to write like your natural inclinations as a writer. I wonder if you could just talk about a little of, you know, where you tend to head as I know from your poems that you have a tremendous capacity for image and kind of really immersive metaphor. And so I just wonder, like, when you sit down to write, is that something that over the years you have comfortably gone back to or that you have resisted and given into? Or is it kind of all instinct and it doesn't, you know, really play out in your mind while you sit down to write? Metaphor has always been a very natural way of thinking for me. I think every writer has some strong suits and some weak suits, and metaphor is just natural to me. Even when I'm just talking to people, I'm constantly saying, it's like this, it's like this. And certainly if I want to convince somebody of something in a conversation, I start saying, it's like this, it's like this. So it's just the way my mind works. They're not always metaphors that are poem-worthy, but those will pop up right away. And in some ways, I have to be careful that I don't get so carried away with the metaphor that I lose the thing itself. And this is true, just kind of the overall what falls onto the page, but also in any particular detail or moment. I always tell my students that the metaphor can't upstage the thing it's describing, that the metaphor is supposed to help us see the thing more clearly, not be so flashy or intrusive that we just see the metaphor. And so that's a pitfall that I, you know, fairly early on had to learn to deal with, because I could do also a metaphor upon a metaphor. You know, this is like this, which is like that, which is like that. And I feel very comfy, but of course it wasn't going to be very effective for the reader. Well, you sort of do that at the end of this poem, right? Like sage gives its scent when you crush it. Like stone is hard. Like there's the first metaphor. They were happy, you know? My experience is like this other thing that is like something else, right? (laughs) If I've mapped it out, I think we would come to that. (laughs) But it's so effective at the end of this poem to go from (laughs) like the kind of, you know, really clear imagistic narrative to the very clear images that are in service to simile, like sage gives its scent when you crush it. I'm like, okay, got it. Next one. Like stone is hard. Okay. They were happy and I could touch it. It's like a perfectly aligned thing, like almost like it's making me think of almost like a joke, like it's a construction that without all three of those sentences following each other wouldn't work. You know, you get from one place to the next place, to the final, like, opening at the end of the poem. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, you know? And that's like, right? That's what metaphor is all about, is for the reader to go Uh like, oh, yeah, right, I get that. Now I totally get that. I can't explain to you why, but yes, I get it. Yeah, and we're always, this is not an original thought with me, of course, but we're always trying to say the unsayable. We're always trying to bring somebody closer into a shared experience. And, you know, I tell my experience so that you and I are in closer relationship. 
you've had a similar experience or maybe you don't know this experience and now you know something more of it, even though maybe you will not have it in your life. But that metaphor is a way that we come into closer connection with each other. It's a magical part of writing, too. It's something that it's, I think is, it seems to many of us, myself included, very intuitive. I, too, like sort of deal with the world and metaphor. I find my children do as well. You know, they speak in metaphor all the time. But it's also something when you were just talking about that, it made me think of like when I've taught sort of like this is maybe an experience you've had or something you've thought or maybe it isn't. But if I can express it clearly enough or or specifically enough or tr- like, you know, truthfully enough in terms of what I'm trying to express, that it will seem like something you have experienced or it will it will in some way resonate with you. And it feels sometimes when you're when I have been teaching, especially young younger poets, younger writers who are really kind of hesitant to move away from maybe away from the safety of cliche or you know sort of cliched images and toward the very specific you know like tell me what it was like tell me the details I want to know the specificity of what happened or what it looked like or what it felt like or what it smelled like they can go like oh no I can't do that like it's so personal you wouldn't understand it I think one of the big things that beginning writers like there's a big shift when they come to understand that it is actually the opposite the more specific and the more kind of personal something is rendered, the more your reader, though I've not had any of these experiences. My son is five years old, so he's never fallen in love, as far as I know. But these things, they come at me and I, I can take them in because they're, they're handed over with such delicious specificity, with such ease of image. Have you found that as a teacher that's kind of like you have to do this like Jedi mind trick with your students where you mm-hmm. have to kind of get them to realize that cliches are not cool. <laughs> it's not cool, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's like, yeah, we don't get to do that if we actually want somebody to feel something. And I think it's, I think it's Stephen Dunn in his book, Best Words, Best Order, who talks about, yes, it is, who talks about Gertrude Stein writing in a, she talks about we're writing in a period of late language when, and earlier in the language, earlier in speaking the English language, a poet could say something like, oh moon, I am lonely, and still convey a visceral feeling of loneliness. But now we would just take those words moon and lonely as signs for something that we get the idea of, but we wouldn't actually feel anything. And that I kind of laugh with my students that, you know, every, it, it, that being true, our linguistic sophistication having gone along so long, how we have to keep inventing new ways, new metaphors, new language to actually give the reader an emotional experience. I keep saying, yeah, every day it's harder because every day more poems have been written. So, you know, get working because it's going to be harder tomorrow. 
<laughs> That's great motivation. I love that. I love that. I, yeah, I, I often tell my students, like, at some point, like, you know, some, like, cave person came home after breaking up with their girl or boyfriend and said, like, oh, my heart is broken, you know, and it was, like, the first time it had ever been said. And it's, like, so genius to conceive of the heart as a machine that could break. And, oh, wow, that was, like, really, that was, like, fresh. <laughs> But now, you know, you say, oh, I got a parking ticket. I'm heartbroken. You know, no one is going to stop and say, oh, my gosh, did you say heartbroken? Your heart was broken? God, that's really cool. That's really fresh language that you're using. (laughs) I like it that you're just you're on the clock. Like, don't let other people go get your metaphors. You got to go get them yourself. Right. (laughs) I wonder if you could talk a little bit, because I think that you're one of the things that makes you a unique poet, I think, is that you have or you had. I don't know if I don't know how how much you write about it or work with. I'm I'm sorry who you're. I can't remember the name of the co-author of the book, The Courage to Heal. Laura Davis. Right. This sort of groundbreaking book about child sexual abuse for the survivors of child sexual abuse. There was like nothing like it out there before it was out there. And I'm just absolutely positively sure that it was something that changed, saved lives. So I'd love you to tell me a little bit about like if there was a point in your life where you kind of pivoted away from that or is it still something that you write about or or that you work with people dealing with or how you have moved forward from that place and if that is still a large part of, you know, how people see you and how people approach you. Originally, originally, back when I was young, I was wanting to be a poet and writing poetry and teaching small workshops of poets and some workshops of just women's poetry, you know, women poets, women writers. And that was back in the early 1970s. And in one of those early workshops, a woman handed me a piece of crumpled up folded paper from her jeans pocket and asked me to read what was there, and I read it. And although I could understand the individual words, I couldn't understand what it was that she was trying to communicate to me. But I could tell from the way she shared it with me that it was of extreme importance. And so I said, thank you for sharing this. Please write some more about it and bring it back next week. I didn't even know what it was about. And we did that a few weeks in a row until finally I could decipher what it was that she was working so hard to express. And it was that she had been sexually abused as a child by her father over a period of time. And this was the very first time that I had ever known that there was such a thing as child sexual abuse. I was not abused myself, and this shocked me and shook me deeply. And once I read this, Carl Rogers, the great psychologist, used to say that once he had worked through an issue in his own life, it was as though someone had sent a telegram to all of his clients 
that they could then bring that issue to him. And it was as though somebody sent a telegram to the world that they could then come to my writing workshops and start writing about child sexual abuse. So even in people who were in different workshops and who had never met this original woman just started pouring in, and I think it was just that the time was right. The rape crisis movement and the domestic violence shelters and all of this had made a uh, foundation upon which the next thing that people could begin to seek help for and speak out about was child sexual abuse. So that led me along and deeply gratifying road away from my own poetry. The more deeply I got into doing that work, I started to work with survivors using writing as a healing tool. And I stopped doing writing, creative writing workshops and started doing these healing workshops for survivors. And that led to the courage to heal eventually and pairing up with Laura to write the book and that led to a lot of work training professionals and I kept trying during that time to also write my own poetry. But as I understand it now, I'm a kind of all or nothing gal and I was so deeply in the psyches of so many people who were important to me and who were relying on me that there wasn't time and there wasn't space to really explore my own life, life experience, the way that I needed to do to write poetry. And so after about a dozen years doing this work, it was very difficult to leave the work because it was so meaningful. But I did finally feel the pull to write poetry because poetry was my first love. And the pull was so strong that I, I had to extricate myself from that work and kind of make a transition back into writing poetry. And I don't do that work at all anymore because it's the kind of thing where if I opened the door a crack, my house would be flooded because even though we've come a long way, need is still great. And because I'm a very public person now in that field, and so I can't just do a little. I would have to do a lot, and that would and I couldn't write poetry anymore. So eventually I had to make the choice that I always tried to support every survivor who I worked with to make, which is to live the life that you truly want to live. And so I had to do that for myself. Of course, you have spent all those years training others and, I mean, just breaking ground, you know? If you, in that workshop, as a teacher, had never even known about child sexual abuse, like, just 12 years later, if you're saying you did that for 12 years, can you just, I just, I mean, I don't know if, if you if you think about it that way, but it seems to me like you changed the conversation, which wasn't happening at all. You changed something very significant for a huge population. And so yeah, that's... That was in 1974, and I, I stopped doing the work totally, I would guess, in about 1992 or so. Mm. Yeah, so about 
74, 84. <laughs> That's a decade. About 16 years. Mm-hmm. About, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of the opportunity of a lifetime to be in that position where I had a certain combination of skills and abilities that I was able to make a meaningful contribution that is an incredible, you know, as I, I'm getting older now, and so as I look back on my life, you know, I just feel like what a huge, huge gift to make that kind of contribution. And also, it's two huge gifts to the world because then you started focusing on your poetry again, and that is a huge gift to the world. It's just really remarkable. I don't know that I can come up with another poet who has so significantly had an effect on two kind of very different parts of the world of life experience. Even though you were teaching writing workshops, they weren't creative writing workshops, they weren't poetry workshops. So I'm sort of in awe of you. I always have been. So I wonder, Alan, did you bring a poem to share? I did. Yeah. This is a poem by Anne Sexton. Letter written on a ferry while crossing Long Island Sound. I am surprised to see that the ocean is still going on. Now I am going back, and I have ripped my hand from your hand as I said I would, and I have made it this far as I said I would, and I am on the top deck now, holding my wallet, my cigarettes, and my car keys at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday in August of 1960. Dearest, although everything has happened, nothing has happened. The sea is very old. The sea is the face of Mary, without miracles or rage or unusual hope, grown rough and wrinkled with incurable age. Still, I have eyes. These are my eyes. The orange letters that spell Orient on the life preserver that hangs by my knees. The cement lifeboat that wears its dirty canvas coat. The faded sign that sits on its shelf saying, keep off. Oh, all right, I say. I'll save myself. Over my right shoulder, I see four nuns who sit like a bridge club, their faces poked out from under their habits, as good as good babies who have sunk into their carriages. Without discrimination, the wind pulls the skirts of their arms. Almost undressed, I see what remains that holy wrist, that ankle, that chain. Oh God, although I am very sad, could you please let these poor nuns loosen from their leather boots and their wooden chairs to rise out over this greasy deck, out over this iron rail, nodding their pink heads to one side, flying four abreast in the old-fashioned side stroke, each mouth open and round, breathing together as fish do, singing without sound. Dearest, see how my dark girls sally forth over the passing lighthouse of plum gut, its shell as rusty as a camp dish, as fragile as a pagoda on a stone. Out over the little lighthouse that warns me of drowning winds that rub over its blind bottom and its blue cover, winds 
that will take the toes and the ears of the rider or the lover. There go my dark girls, their dresses puff in the leeward air. Oh, they are lighter than flying dogs or the breath of dolphins. Each mouth opens gratefully, wider than a milk cup. My dark girls sing for this. They are going up. See them rise on black wings, drinking the sky, without smiles or hands or shoes. They call back to us from the gauzy edge of paradise. Good news, good news. Wow, what a poem. I've never heard that poem before. (sighs) Yes, what a poem. I mean, it just really, there were distinct moments where I was like going to turn my microphone back on because I thought it was over. Like, oh, what an ending. And then the next stanza, (laughs) like, oh my gosh, we're going farther. It's just, it's also so demonstrative of Anne Sexton's brilliance. Yes, yes. I was going to read a different poem for my lover returning to his wife. And somehow I had bookmarked this poem while I was looking for the other poem. I mean, it had been bookmarked from some months or years before. So I read it to myself and I went, oh, wow, I hadn't read this poem in so long. You know, of course, Anne Sexton is the original, the original metaphor maker. Mm. And I did have the great good fortune to study with Anne Sexton when I was getting my MA in poetry. Wow. Uh, And that was at Boston University in 1970. And she saved my poetry life by, I don't think she thought that I was such a great poet, but her teaching was exactly what I needed at that time, which was this permission and encouragement to just stretch out like this, Mm -hmm. to just going to expand, because the other professors, all of whom were male, only suggested things that I could delete from my poem. (laughs) And although the poems truly were not very good at all, and even bad, deletion will rarely make a not very good poem good. It might make it less bad, but it can't make it good. And no one was really teaching me how to dig in further and expand. And um, her permission, her showing me how to do that, I mean, I certainly didn't learn very much in those days because I am a very, very, very slow learner. But it was the beginning. It was the beginning, and I think I might have given up had there not been that beginning. Wow. And I just love all of her metaphors in this poem and the way in which once she gets to these nuns, she just goes all out. And everything unfolds in this way that I just love how she starts from the absolute specificity of exactly where she is, letter written on a ferry while crossing Long Island Sound, to the exact time and date and exactly what she's holding in her hand. And then by the end, we're just out there flying with these nuns doing the old-fashioned side stroke. Yeah. And it's just, it seems to me also, it's like such a great Anne Sexton poem to share because I think our culture's knowledge of Anne Sexton is so limited, you know, 
and I think she very often, frankly, gets her tonal qualities get mistaken for the tonal qualities of Sylvia Plath. I mean, there's just so much humor in this poem and so much beautiful kind of precision of image and detail and narrative and but like what you just said, that sort of like a stretching out of language where, you know, like she's not trying to fit syllables in and make a pristine poem. She's just going. And it's like you can almost like see her delight in like how far can we go here? How far can we go? And now I'm going to go to look at these nuns and like let me imagine them le- like levitating off and doing it. Like, you know, it's just a really great Anne Sexton poem and I'm really glad you shared it with us. It's a pleasure to get to read it out loud. Ellen Bass's poem, I Could Touch It, was published in Poetry Magazine. You can find the poem at poetryfoundation.org or at our website, kut.org. This is Just to Say is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm Carrie Fountain. Thanks for listening.